Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl, joining you from Singapore. And back in Washington, D.C., I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. John, a lot going on uh, over there. A busy, busy couple of days for you. Uh, I'm on the other side of the world, Rick. We may have a slight delay on this podcast, uh, but a huge day. It is June 12th. We all know that was the day we were all looking at for the big summit. It actually happened. Uh, I've been here to witness it, and we are going to be joined in a few minutes uh, by somebody who served for more than a year in a very senior position on the National Security Council who's got some insight into how President Trump uh, went about this day and what to expect next. But I got to tell you, Rick, uh, the president, for whatever we may you know, whatever may happen with this and the second guessing that we're already seeing uh, happen, uh, the president believes that this is the greatest achievement since he's uh, since he was elected. And what a show it was. Practically every image, John, and, and you had a front row seat for so much of it, practically every image was surreal to see the handshakes, to see them smiling and chatting amiably and uh, the cameras coming in during uh, various breaks in the action, uh, the, the play-by-play, and then, of course, the president... Uh, wrapping it up with uh, with a, with a signed agreement, a communique from the two countries, uh, vague in a lot of details, and I think a lot of people will be picking apart all of the potential loopholes in this. But a major breakthrough, larger than any president has had before with North Korea. Uh, the summit itself is historic, and, and John, I, I think you're right. This is a president thinking broad about legacy. That 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 came through to me. What was it like in the room? There's, there, was it steeped in history with every sense, with the the pictures and the videos and and all the rest? Well, the clearest thing to me was watching the president want to linger before the cameras to soak up every minute of this. You had a few moments uh, during his meetings uh, with Kim Jong-un where it was purely photo op, and yet the president wanted to linger and talk. Uh, There was the walk uh, through the gardens. And the, the, the two men alone, no translators. It was kind of funny to watch them talk because they don't <laughs> – I mean, we don't know. Kim Jong-un may understand English. And we've never heard him speak English. Um, and, you know, walking through – it was supposed to just walk by the cameras. The president had stopped and said, we're going to be signing an agreement. This went even better than anybody would have thought. When they actually signed the agreement, it was supposed to be a signing. It wasn't supposed to really be a you – know, with very brief statements, the president kept on talking. And then when they went to say goodbye – Again, and then the press conference. He had a press conference that went some hour and fifteen minutes. I, I was there in the second row, I was sitting right behind uh, Mike Pompeo and uh, and General Kelly, and you could see Sarah Sanders off to the side, uh, you know, wondering when they were going to wrap this thing up. He kept on taking questions. He kept on taking questions, and you know, I got to tell you, before the press conference. He did a, an interview, a rather extensive interview, with our colleague George Stephanopoulos. It was a fascinating interview with George, fascinating press conference. But here's how the president responded when George asked him really the central question about all of this. How do you trust him, though? Is he willing to change? Do you believe he's well, changed? Well, you know, over my lifetime, I've done a lot of deals with a lot of people, and sometimes the people that you most distrust turn out to be the most honorable ones, and the people that you do trust, they are not the honorable ones. So uh, we are starting from a very high plane. We're starting from a very good relationship. This has been a very big day in terms of the world. I think it's been maybe I, a lot of people are saying We're it's historic. historic. 
honorable, honorable. He's talking about Kim Jong-un as honorable. He trusts him. I mean, you just, I don't think any of this you could have envisioned, you could have imagined. I think that this was all unthinkable until we actually saw and heard what happened today. I Totally right, John. I, I mean, trust is a big word here. And I'm going back to the, the Reagan maxim of trust, but verify. First on the trust thing, these two men, who seem to have gotten each other in terms of personal styles. They understand uh, uh, media images. They understand mass communication. Uh, they understand, to some extent, their own, their own people. Uh, they built some kind of trust based on what we now know or even conversations they were having previously. Uh, and, they, and they consummated that trust with this big leap of faith because they are now linked to each other's fates. What Kim gets out of this, what Trump gets out of this, they are now together based on this handshake, based on this agreement. But then the verify piece of it. How do you even begin to verify what is going on inside the North Korean regime? It is still a brutal totally closed down place. Uh, we have no visibility still as to what, uh, what a denuclearization will actually look like and how you can prove it. The president's speculating maybe it's a 15-year process. We don't know. All of those things are out there. Uh, it is this leap of faith between these two, and, uh, and it, it has to be based on trust. It can't happen without that. There's so little in the Kim regime's activities up until this point uh, that would make you think you should trust it. Uh, and I would say there's very little in President Trump's uh, public statements on, on nuclear issues. Look at the Iran deal, uh, as a for instance, that says that, that uh, another foreign power should trust the United States. And yet we're here. And yet they're there having this handshake that is based on trust. And, and we're here where eight months ago we were talking about the military preparing options to strike North Korea. Right. We were talking about what look like a possible drumbeat to war. Uh, so there's been an incredible thaw in the relations. We have no idea if it will continue. We have no idea if it will actually lead to a real agreement for North Korea to get rid of its nuclear weapons. But we, we, are, we are at this juncture. The president is soaking it in. The president clearly sees this as the signature achievement of his presidency so far. Um, but as you alluded to, so many unanswered questions. To me, one of the both, well, really one of the stranger moments in all of this was shortly before the press conference, just minutes before President Trump stepped out on the stage. What we saw without any warning or any indication it was coming was a slick produced movie trailer Destiny Productions and the language was Korean and Rick I know you think I am you know I've got a lot of skills in this in this yeah. area but I, I don't my Korean is not very good so it was a it was a five or so minute production in Korean but with incredible imagery like a like a, I thought I thought it was a North Korean propaganda movie but produced by Steven Spielberg or something. I mean, it was like the strangest thing. But it, it, it outlined, even though you couldn't understand the words, it outlined like two different visions. A North Korea that is that becomes every bit the economic powerhouse of South Korea or Singapore, um, Japan, uh, or, or nuclear annihilation. And it was presenting the choice as stark as that nuclear annihilation or prosperity huh. like the world's never seen or certainly north korea 
has never seen. And then they played it again in English, Rick. And then as the music was fading on this movie trailer, the president walked out for the press conference. And what we learned is that this was something that he played today for Kim during the meetings. He brought, brought brought out an iPad and played this video. And it's got all of this imagery. This is why I say it's like a propaganda uh, film because it's got all this towering imagery of these two men who are poised to make history and save the world from nuclear annihilation. Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Um, Anyway, I mean, just... And that was the argument they were essentially making to Kim Jong-un. Make this choice. and Save the world from the unthinkable and move your country into... My lord, you know, a country that surpasses South Korea. And in the argument in that he's power. and the argument he's making to Kim publicly and and we presume privately is you're going to be rich, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be successful. He went on in his interview with with George uh John about how much how much his country loves him. You could see the fervor he says, which to me is either unbelievable naivete, willful ignorance or Flattery, uh, uh, downright just laying it on thick for a guy that you need to now work with you. Maybe it's some combination of the both because it ignores the, the harsh and awful brutalities, the murder, murderous regime that is the Kim regime, uh, the abject poverty, well, starvation. Well, I mean, it's so, so that is exactly what I asked the president about at the press conference. Take a listen. Yes, John, go ahead. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, John. Uh, uh, re- returning to the question of human rights, you spoke very powerfully on the issue uh, during your State of the Union address. You, right. you showed that you had the defector in the First Lady's box with the crutches uh, who escaped. And you, at that point, said that North Korea uh, has more brutally oppressed its people than any other regime on Earth. Do you still believe that is the case, having having sat down with Kim Jong-un, and does he need to change that? John, I believe it's a rough situation over there. There's no question about it. And uh, we did discuss it today pretty strongly. I mean, knowing what the main purpose of what we were doing is, denuking, but uh, discussed it at pretty good length. Uh, We'll be doing something on it. It's, It's rough. It's rough in a lot of places, by the way. Not just there, but it's rough. And we will uh, continue that, and I think ultimately we'll agree to something. But uh, it was discussed at length outside of of the nuclear situation, one of the primary topics. But do you think that needs to change to bring on this glorious new era you've talked about? Are they going to have to... I think it will change, yeah. I think it probably has to, but I think it will. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, I don't know. At another point in the press conference, he said that the discussion of human rights was very brief because this Mm -hmm. was really about the nuclear issue. But uh, to me, it's just not only is there the the very real human rights issue, the fact that there are at least 100,000 North Koreans believed to be in forced labor camps, prison camps yeah. that, that, that are described as, as, as the world's worst, um, but also just the, the, the transformation and how the president has talked about that dictator and that regime. And, and when you look at what the United States got out of this— 
it's a whole lot of promissory notes, a whole lot of uh, possibilities, uh, promises down the road, which the North Korean regime, by the way, has given in the past. You don't have any particulars about what it means for production of, of nuclear uh, nuclear fuels. We, we don't know even now what the extent of the nuclear program is or how you'd begin to monitor that. Uh, no actual benchmarks for denuclearization. Um, and Kim gets something very big, something that his father and his grandfather had sought before, uh, legitimization on the world stage, a meeting with the president of the United States, the center of the of the world is uh, on on his actions. He is treated as an equal by President Trump. It could have a huge payoff. It could be the the thing that solves the the largest uh, and perhaps most urgent uh, crisis to world security, um, or it could all blow up, and we could be back where we started or worse. Uh, I think the. The, the, the way that the, this has been laid out so far, as Lindsey Graham said uh, on our Sunday show the other day, it's either war or peace, and that's it. Uh, and this is, for now, a peaceful day, but who knows what's next, because there are so many unanswered questions after this extraordinary, extraordinary couple days. Well, Rick, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Tom Bossert, who until not long ago was the uh, Director of Homeland Security on the National Security Council. We'll be back in a moment. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. All right, joining us now here in Singapore is Tom Bossert. Uh, formerly uh, directing Homeland Security issues on the National Security Council. Tom, you worked closely with President Trump uh, for a good solid year. You've seen him deal with national security issues. You've advised him on national security issues. What struck you about this day? Yeah, A couple of things struck me, and the first is that we got what the president sought. Now, it can't be understated that this president just took us in a 24-hour period from a decades-long stalemate with increasing tensions to a place where, and again, it's not done, but we've got a blueprint for it now in writing, signed by two leaders, for four things. The POWs and MIAs being one major one, but the denuclearization of of the peninsula is a pretty significant agreement for Kim Jong Un to make in a political document. And then, for this president, Trump, to on paper say that he would like to entertain a very serious and expeditious path to a peace treaty or a peace agreement to replace the armistice on the peninsula. finally end the Korean War. finally end the Korean War. It's something, I think, that is the arc or the history arc of his life. A military academy study as a young teenager during the Cuban Missile Crisis of MacArthur and not looking at the MacArthur through the prism of history where he might have made some massive mistakes that led us to this need but rather looking at him like a great hero and then in that same document the fourth and I think maybe underreported component of today and that is to essentially recognize North Korea it's not a formal recognition but it's pretty close you saw the flags today in the backdrop you saw that we're going to recognize a peaceable regime on that peninsula 
and we're going to establish essentially normalized relations. I think the president later confirmed that we would send an emissary to North Korea, which many have called for, many have criticized, but that's a really stunning document. And then two other things struck me, really not the two things, but the three. The second thing that struck me today was how many things the president said in his subsequent interviews that he's been saying to me and others on a daily basis. His instinct to, t- to stop the what he called provocative military exercises and to reduce their cost, that's something that he's had in his mind now from, from day one. And then lastly, I suspect he was eager to show the world how much he knew and how much command he had over this topic. And what that translated to was a very epic, I think you pointed out, John, that that was the first time he's done a full-blown press conference since February. And boy, was it full-blown. Of last year. Of last year. And boy, was it full-blown. Yeah. Now, what, what what do you think was going through John Bolton's mind as this was unfolding? I mean, I, you know, you don't want to necessarily read too much into kind of Kremlinology, where people sit, where they are. But I, I... thought it was interesting at the press conference um i was in the second row in front of me was mike pompeo and john kelly um, um uh, pottinger was over on on the other side also in the front row and, and you know and a few other official uh, ambassador kim for those listening matt pottinger is a brilliant guy in charge of asian policies on the national security council former former uh, journalist we'll, we'll so, give him a pass on that <laughs> so but uh Bolton was I, I had struggled to find him. He he um he was kind of standing off to the side. He wasn't sitting with the delegation. Almost seemed like he was now maybe again, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it almost seemed like he was Well, uh, you know, in a lot of ways the way I read it uh, pulling a Jim Comey. Remember Comey talked about how he wanted to blend in, in into the into the curtain on that famous uh shot we've seen a thousand times. Not only do I know what you what you're talking <laughs> yeah. about, I want you to go back and watch that famous B roll now yeah. because the man in the curtains next to him was is, me. Is you. <laughs> is me. And no, I'm not kidding. I, I was standing next to him at that time. So uh, I make a couple of things out of this, and I think you know John Bolton deserves a little bit of credit here, right? The man's dedicated his life to being a WMD expert. Yeah. Now he got a little bit what I'll call policy wonky, or maybe geeked out a little bit, and tried to talk about the the various models that he would like to employ. You know that Libya model, right? Right. Now look, of course, a terrible gaffe on his part not to realize that that's going to be taken to mean what most laymen take it to mean. Yeah. Gaddafi's demise. But from his perspective, looking at the particular forms of denuclearized agreements or denuclearization or disarmament agreements that one could employ, that was one of the cleanest. It's also, by the way, not one of the most applicable because they didn't enrich their own they didn't fuel. have They didn't have bombs yet. I, I, they, 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 were, they were very early in the process. I understand, yeah. but i got to be honest. I really, Even I don't believe that he was looking to, in a subtle way, tank this deal because he didn't believe it was a good idea. No, but, but my point is that Bolton is a hardliner on this. Yeah. Uh, Bolton... I just know. I mean, and I've I've known the guy for a long time. I know you've known him for a long time, but there's no way that he was applauding what was going on today. So actually, I don't know him. Uh, I've I've barely ever said 15 words to but him. But you know his work. I you do know, know what his he's work. all about. I, I do know what he's about. But I'll tell you, who better than a guy that's got that much cynicism and personal experience and self doubt to be in charge of? Ensuring that those high-minded words turn into actual concrete deliverables. Right, there's a good cop, bad cop thing. Well, and all not that, so much that. You know, I don't know how much he helped going into today's outcome 
and frankly, he wasn't in charge of it. He came so late in the game. Mike Pompeo, and, and don't misunderstand me on this. This is something worth elaborating upon. Mike Pompeo was in charge of this from cradle to grave because he switched jobs, not because he's just Mike Pompeo. He's a brilliant man. I love him to death. So does the president. But it was appropriate at the time when the United States was employing a maximum pressure campaign to not undermine that campaign by beginning diplomatic conversations. At that time, it was appropriate to have the CIA director reach out in a very clandestine way, spy chief to spy chief, which doesn't reduce the pressure and threat of violence, which this president was clearly employing. And then later, once that threat of violence produced the result, desired result we were seeking, to then engage with your chief diplomat. It just so happened that the timing of that move, whether it dawned on the president as that being the purpose or not, happened to put Mike Pompeo in that musical chair. So... You know, this was a scripted thing. Mike Pompeo now being in both seats puts him in the catbird or driver's seat. And, you know, remember the sequencing of this. By the time John Bolton arrives on scene, they're in the frantic final scrambling phase of doing what I think they've done, which is putting together a significant amount of in-the-background back scenes work to put the details of disarmament together and denuclearization together. Really the right time for a guy like him with his skill sets to join but but not the time for him to really mess it up. I mean, that was obviously a gaffe in the Libya reference, but I think that the, the real importance of John Bolton is going to come now in the post-agreement, post-political agreement, concrete implementation phase. All right, I, I, I want to let you go because it's been a very long couple of days here, but, but give me your bottom line before you do. Where do you think this goes from here? Do you think we actually get to the point where there's an actual agreement, you know, with steps taken on and spelled out on verification where the North Koreans have uh, given a full declaration of, of their entire nuclear program. They've agreed to allow international inspectors go in. There's a ser- I mean, do we really get to that point? And if so, how long does that take? Forget how long does denuclearization take. How long does it take to actually craft an agreement like that that would be signed by two leaders. I am all positive on my bottom line. This is this is nothing but a step or a path towards peace. It's a highway to peace, not a path to peace. I said that earlier today. Now, no data, no dice. I've said that today as well. If they ultimately don't provide us the data on their weapons and their systems and their capabilities and so forth, that's you know a deal breaker. It'll kill us. It'll evidence their intent or lack of it and so forth. But if they continue down the path, my prediction here is that we will end up with a peace accord between the North and South and a disarming first step. In other words, the second steps of taking apart their production of missiles and their enrichment of fuel and so forth will get complicated. But that first step that we could count on as irreversible would be them turning over their missiles and their warheads, the actual bombs. If we see that, we've got a deal. We've got something really that we can count on. If we don't, I think we'll know, and I think the president will do what he promised he'd do today. How soon will we know? Well, you know, if they do that, it doesn't take long, in three to six months, if they want to actually be serious about turning over their bombs and missiles. If they don't, then we're going to be at this, and we're going to be right back to all the cynics saying, we told you so. Right. I don't think the president loses that much as long as the coalition stays cohesive and doesn't allow them some backdoor money or backdoor coal yeah. or backdoor Well, food. that's a big question because you, you've, you're already hearing reports of, of the sanctions being... China's the key. Lo- Russia loosened. can be the spoiler. Yeah, exactly. No, no. All right. 
Tom Bosser. A lot more to talk about this. We'll be talking about you are now an ABC News consultant. Uh, look, look forward to having you back on, on the podcast. Uh, I thank am you, thrilled. Thank, thank you, you for joining us here, here in Singapore. Uh, that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Thanks to Angie Yak, Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller, uh, my, uh, my, my, even my co-host, Rick Klein. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back again next week.